and welcome to TV Watch, a podcast from Digital TV Europe looking at the biggest news and trends in the worlds of broadcasting, streaming and everything else to do with the TV industry in Europe and further afield. I'm Jonathan Easton, Deputy Editor of Digital TV Europe and on today's show... Streaming is the future of video viewing, but with purse strings tightening for audiences, will free ad-supported streamers be the way forward? Today, I chat with Ed Barton, chief analyst at Omdia, about how AVOD stuck up against the paid-for streamers like Netflix and Amazon Prime Video in 2020. And after that, I chat to Henry Embleton, head of ad products and revenue at specialist streaming service Crunchyroll, which offers both ad-supported and subscription products. I do not think it is a controversial statement to say that the past decade in video consumption has largely been defined by a shift away from traditional linear TV and towards on-demand streaming. The BBC iPlayer, of course, launched in 2007 as a catch-up service, which was largely complementary to the broadcaster's linear output, and YouTube has been around for even longer as a means of watching millions of hours of video content. I mean, to begin with, it was mostly just men stood in front of a zoo but it has evolved into a media juggernaut since then but it is the growth of netflix that has really been the leader of this shift to ott and particularly among younger viewers cord cutting now today i'm not going to be charting the history of netflix and its unprecedented rise i think that that's something which deserves an episode on its own but i will say that the success of netflix has turned it into the figure of success for the majority of companies launching streaming services and has set it as the model to follow. That is to say, charge customers a modest fee on a rolling month-by-month basis for unlimited on-demand access to a library made up of thousands of hours of content. But now that so many media giants can see the value of streaming, they're reining their content back in and launching their own streaming services. In the past several months, we've seen a number of major media companies launch their own subscription-based streamers, which we'll chat about later. But this has led to a fear of a breaking point of subscription fatigue, where that fiver a month looks a lot more daunting when sat next to the countless other streaming services that consumers are paying for or expected to pay for. It's for this reason why a growing number of consumers are showing a willingness to sign up for free ad-supported streaming services, or AVODs, which require nothing more of them aside from a capacity to watch a few ads. A recent survey from Rakuten Advertising found that 60% of consumers who didn't know about AVODs were more likely to sign up for one when it was described to them, but only a little more than a third were actually aware that these kinds of services even exist. Europe admittedly does have a bit of an AVOD problem though, While US media companies are being very gung-ho about investing heavily in the market, Viacom CBS, for example, bought Pluto for over $300 million last year, and the new Fox bought Tubi for just under $450 million earlier this year, we in Europe are a bit behind the curve. A separate study from Detaxis found that the AVOD market in Europe is still very much in a consolidation phase, with AVODs yet to become a serious strategic asset. This report said that the European AVOD market is mostly made up of platforms of local broadcasters. In the UK, we've got ITV Hub, All4, 
my five, that sort of thing. And that these domestic only local players have, quote, hindered the emergence of a regional native player with the ability to compete. That's not to say there's no money in at all. The Avod market is valued at 300 million euros in the UK and 150 million euros in France, but the market has been experiencing limited growth. That said, there is still a great deal of confidence that AVODs will come of age in Europe and that the market is only going to become increasingly valuable in time. However, something which has had an unavoidable effect on the entire industry has been the impact of COVID-19 and advertisers almost universally slashing their marketing budgets, cutting the funding of the primary source of income for ad-supported streamers. Joining me now to discuss the current state of play and the future of the Avod sector is Ed Barton, Chief Analyst of Entertainment at Omdia, who has spent the best part of a decade tracking the entertainment industry and the growth of streaming. How has the Avod market withstood the COVID-19 pandemic, considering that advertising, the primary source of revenue for these platforms, is largely down across the board? If we think about advertising, then... Yeah, yeah, okay, you, you are you are correct. Obviously, it's been impacted. There are entire um, advertising segments which have almost, you know, gone virtually to zero. But there were a handful um, which which actually did, you know, reasonably well. Obviously, anything to do with home shopping, online commerce, and related services has done okay, but nowhere near good enough to compensate for the declines in the other areas. When we think about how that's translated through to its impact on OTT AVOD platforms, it's pretty much similar for pretty much any ad-supported business um, across most media types. It, it's been a pretty horrible few months at the office. We don't know how far down revenues are um, on 2019 across the board yet. We're still getting in results for um, uh, for the various platforms. But I mean, I certainly think we'd be looking around at least sort of low, low to mid-low double digits, you know, however you want to interpret that decline on percentage terms on the previous year. So would you say then that I know you, you about 15 months ago published a report looking into OTT video hybrid platforms, would you say, oh, yes. and, and, and in that you, you know, have given some kind of projections of what the market will look like in the coming years? Is oh, it really... Homework. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> this is not my first rodeo. Would you say then that at the moment it's just really kind of impossible to provide, you know, adjusted figures? Currently, currently, definitely, yes. I mean, if we're lucky, we'll get monthly numbers. But for, for a lot of the video platforms, we'll look at, we, 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 you know, we don't get things like revenues and audience numbers um, until the end of a quarter. So although we would have indications regarding, you know, how much of a decline there's been year on year, confidently projecting those into five-year forecasts from what we know currently, uh, yeah, would be challenging. In that report, you specifically highlighted that, um, is it Aichi? I'm always rubbish with the pronunciation. Yeah. Um, that the likes of them and Hotstar, now Disney Plus Hotstar, obviously, and iFlex and YouTube yeah. Premium, yeah. the the leading players. You know, a little more than a year down the line, do you still mm. see those primarily Eastern well, streamers as I the mean, leading uh, players. iFlix, um, iFlix has obviously uh, suffered pretty badly uh, since then, so that hasn't aged well at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> iFlix, definitively not. But for the other ones, I mean, Hotstar, ITE, of those, I still ha- I, I have the I have the highest level of confidence in ITE YouTube Premium. I was going to ask whether you think that they're still the kind of leading players, given the amount of money that the likes of Viacom, CBS, Fox, NBCU have poured into Pluto, Tubi, Peacock over the past year. It's an interesting and a very useful way of looking at how 
you know, how we should rank or how we should perceive these respective video platforms. How much are they spending on content? So we do we look at that pretty closely. In terms of the platforms that we're talking about, so you mentioned that there is significant production investment going into the likes of Tubi TV, Pluto TV. Off the top of my head, I can't recall exactly how much they're spending on original content production. My my current impression is that if we look at the spending of those AVOD, um, the, the pure AVOD platforms, then it would still be significantly less than Hotstar, certainly. The, look, the, 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 platforms, the platforms like Hotstar, Netflix, iQIYI, YouTube Premium, which predominantly rely on a subscription-based model, are always going to spend way, 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 way more on content than a pure ad-funded model, particularly in OTT. The scale of the level of revenues is just completely different. With the AVOL platforms that we're talking about there, their audiences tend to be, you know, they can put up some pretty big numbers for like the best piece of the content. But in terms of how effectively the ad model monetizes the volume of audience compared with potentially a smaller audience, but everyone paying subscriptions, the difference in the amount of content acquisition that enables you to do as a result of those revenues is huge. So moving just kind of more broadly onto AVOD as a business proposition, um, stats show that even before the pandemic caused purse strings to tighten, there was an increasing willingness from viewers to use AVOD services. Is it an an oversimplification to just say that this is because they're free? Like in your previous report, you've referred to AVOD as the eyeball economy. Do you think that it's just because they're free or that they are actually compelling products in their own right logically speaking it's, it's always going to have to be a combination of the two i guess i mean what i mean the free thing just means that price is no longer a constraint so you know there, there, there are there other constraints to people actually accessing or using that service well i mean in that context um you know people's time is 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 something valuable uh the ease the accessibility of a given service might also have an impact is it available on the platforms that on the device that that everyone wants to use so you know, look, it's 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 obviously not enough just to just to put out a video platform which is free because there are many free video platforms which are which are just as competitive. So then I think you've got to look into other things, which is that for any product based on distributing video, basically always comes back to the content. Whichever way we mm-hmm. ask it in consumer surveys, trying to find you know purchase motivations for subscriptions, and the number one is always going to be there was something I wanted to watch or some permutation of that. So you know then we start thinking. So if we look at each of the individual platforms, you know what is it on there? that you can watch, which you can't watch anywhere else. So obviously a lot of our um, focus when we try to come to sort of a qualitative um, ranking, say, of the various video platforms by the desirability of the content on them, then you look at the number of exclusives on there. You look at the original content productions, um, how much they're spending on those. You know, that platform will be the only place on which you can see that. So that's why, you know, we look very, very closely at total content spend, which Mm. would be split into acquisitions from third parties and original content productions the selling point for 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 any video platform as you've said for for viewers is content but the selling point for advertisers over traditional linear tv is the prospect of highly targeted addressable advertising does the addressable advertising being incorporated in these platforms like peacock actually provide that much more bang for the advertisers buck versus like linear tv the way we sort of regard addressable advertising is 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 it's um it's targeted advertising in the context of an on-demand service 
you know, like a YouTube, it's 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 pre-roll or whatever. But in the context of either a live streaming service or a linear TV channel, you you know, they they can do the clever thing where they will, you know, they'll dynamically insert a targeted advert to individual devices or 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 viewers that um well, which is something that a number of advertisers like enormously. Mm. And I think the growth in revenues for um, spending on addressable advertising and spending on multi-platform um, ad campaigns would would bear that out pretty aggressively. Those things you describe are now possible on a growing number of the world's leading pay TV services as well as online. Brand advertisers, depending on who they work with, but you know, if they come to Sky, instead of saying, I want to have these slots um, in your 3 p.m. Saturday football game. Uh, actually, what I want is I want this audience, and you get and you you buy an audience rather than time slots. You say I want this type of demographic, etc., etc., etc. So if you imagine that you know you can do that kind of targeting and that kind of buy um, across TV, and then then it gets expanded to online uh, and mobile as well. And if you do this kind of multi-platform ad campaign, you can track which ad. A particular person um, has watched. So if that particular individual then changes to another device, they won't be hit with the same ad again. They can get another ad in the same carousel for the same campaign, say. Um, so you can do a number of really interesting, cool sort of scheduling things like that. But most importantly, you remove duplication, which is also considered sort of wasted ad spend in that particular model. The level of targeting has now also become incredibly sophisticated depending on the type of advertiser look i think most advertisers would unquestionably find it the things you mentioned more valuable but the people that find the type of advertiser that finds addressable advertising i think most valuable are actually smaller regional um oriented businesses because these are the types of businesses that had never advertised on kind of big large-scale media outlets before addressable advertising because addressable advertising enables you to cap the volume of adverts you actually put out in an individual campaign, unlike broadcast TV, where it just goes out to all 20 million people watching ITV. Mm. With Sky AdSmart or similar things, you can say, I'm a garden center only operating in Gloucestershire. I just want it shown in Gloucestershire and then three miles outside the county borders because that's all that's all I care. So you can do things like that. So I think that scale of advertiser, which um, a number of these addressable advertising initiatives are incredibly successful at convincing to, you know, use TV or online streaming advertising for the first time. I mean, um, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, well, it's, it's been absolutely transformative. I've mentioned Peacock a couple of times. And yeah. I think that's a really interesting case because it's really the first major streaming service in one of these huge US media businesses that comes with a hybrid model of a free ad supported tier, a premium ad supported tier and a premium ad free tier. Yeah. Hulu launched back about a decade ago with a free tier, but that was removed shortly after and it was clearly not working out. Yeah. Do you think that this is actually a viable model in 2020 or do you think that you know that they're just looking at this free tier as a as an onboarding for people to actually sign up and do you expect more streamers to follow a similar strategy rather than just launching a single product with a $10 plus price tag one size definitely does not fit all uh in terms of approaches for you know I'm a video platform how sure, do I get yeah. a market how do I monetize this audience but let's stick with peacock because I, I agree. It's a very interesting example. Um, you know, it is. It, it you know it sort of represents. Um, you know, it's 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 um, 
you know, we, we, we talk a lot of, at the moment about how big traditional broadcasters like NBC, like ITV, uh, like RTL, you know, they're all basically going through huge internal transformations at the moment, you know, to, yeah. to, 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 you know, to help them straddle both the traditional model and which they've built huge businesses and still have relatively significant businesses and, you know, minimizing the decline of that while also trying to grow, um, you know, OTT streaming you know, mobile audiences as well. And so, you know, for NBC, you know, to come out with, you know, with the, the Peacock strategy, this is, this is absolutely huge in, in in that kind of context and it's you know it's basically nbc saying this is one of the critical endpoints of our of our digital transformation however you want to call it and so if we look at what they're doing with peacock i do think it's quite interesting we should also remember that they nbc universal is owned by comcast uh, which also owns sky and um, I think NBC, where Peacock was very fortunate to get a lot of expertise from Sky and the Now TV team in the UK mm. um, to really, you know, to say, look, this is a go-to-market strategy. This is how you identify and find your audience. US network broadcasters obviously have been hugely reliant on pay TV um, distribution for much of their lives. And, you know, with Peacock being offered free to, I think, you know, pretty much every pay TV um, customer, who gets NBC Universal through their set-top box will also get access to a tier of Peacock. I think that's similar to the HBO strategy and HBO Max as well. Yeah. To me, it outwardly seems to make sense. The mm. set-top box is the device on which we have this gigantic um, and very valuable audience about whom we know quite a lot. Um, so, you know, that's where I think it sort of really hits. Uh, you know, you mentioned, um, is it mainly for onboarding to a higher price tier? And, you know, my response to that would probably be, well, why can't it be both and more? Um, right. Of course, yeah. of course, the onboarding to a higher, more premium tier um, would be great. And, you know, over time, I'm sure they have expectations as to how much of, you know, how quickly they want to graduate their audience from the free to the to the pay tier. Uh, I, I don't know the exact details of the strategy for each of the tiers. But what I would say is that I think it would be very important for NBC Universal to make sure that, you know, when people access the free tier, that if you want to stay at the free tier, that's a good experience in itself. You know what I mean? You don't mm -hmm. want that segment of audience to feel like they're getting the bum deal or whatever. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, on the, 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 of course, there there has to be something good behind the velvet rope of the subscription to, you know, to, to form a convincing argument to trade up. Um, the last thing I just want to ask was about optics with ad supported platforms, Pluto, etc. Netflix is obviously the biggest name in the streaming world and you can't move around any major city without being bombarded by ads for its big series. Disney sure. Plus similarly embarked on an aggressive marketing campaign, particularly in the UK when it launched in March. And yet mm. despite having the backing of, as I've said, the likes of Viacom and Fox and being viewable on pretty much any device. Platforms like Pluto still seem as though they aren't really in the mainstream. Well, not yet at least. And there seems to be a kind of perception that these platforms are made up of budget, low quality content. Is that a misconception or do the platform operators need to do a better job selling these streamers? Uh, I certainly agree with your last point. I think the, you know, I think the platform owners have to do a better job of, of selling. If, look, if you're talking about like Tubi, Pluto TV, Moby TV, then, mm. yeah, I think they could do a slightly better, you know, I don't want to criticize them. I'm just saying they, they, oh, could, cool. do a, they could do a better job of, you know, defining exactly 
you know, what it is they bring to the party that's different from all the people who are currently at the party. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Netflix. I mean, there are some pretty powerful people at this party who are, pre- who are prepared to give you a lot of stuff for free. I mean, you can throw YouTube in there as well. And, you know, as we've already established, people's time is precious. So even if you make it free, you need a positive reason for people to come to you, I guess. And that positive reason for video platforms is almost always in the form of content that you can watch there, which you can't watch anywhere else. So I guess the first thing would be like, when I think of something like Tubi TV or, or Pluto TV, uh, what is the, you know, does a show pop into your head that you think, oh, oh I can only watch that there? You know, I think that's the kind of, you know you, you, that's the that's the level of recognition that they'd want to drive in people if you say to someone well, why don't you have netflix and they say well what can you watch on netflix most people probably go 13 reasons why mm-hmm. house of cards orange whatever you know what i mean mm. yeah well before we go do you want to just give a brief little plug at anything you're working at and how people can get in touch with you Currently, I guess um, my focus has been a lot on sports, pretty detailed analysis of, um, you know, Amazon's uh, ambition in uh, acquiring rights for live sports streaming, how that plays into their broader um, strategy for building Amazon Prime. Going into some depth um, around Amazon's key markets, particularly uh, the UK, US and Germany, obviously, um, and also um, looking at the Indian market, which 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 is important for Amazon, but somewhere they haven't really uh, gotten into uh, acquiring rights quite yet. If you wanted to deepen the discussion around sports um, or around uh, TV, OTT video, um, entertainment distribution in general, then uh, you know you're more than welcome to drop me an email, ed.barton at omdeer.com, um, or if you have a more broader uh, query for any of the topics we cover at Omdeer across the entire technology, media and telecommunications spectrum, then either drop me an email or uh, drop an email to askananalyst at omdeer.com. Before we go on, I want to give a quick reminder that the deadline for our Videotech Innovation Awards is fast approaching, so I implore you to check out the website at videotechinnovationawards.com for more information about the categories and how to get shortlisted. If you don't know, the Videotech Innovation Awards are Digital TV Europe's way of celebrating the advancements and innovations in video services and technologies made over the past year. And boy, what a year it's been, even though we are only about halfway through. God. Anyway, the awards themselves are taking place December 8th at Church House, Westminster, London, and the deadline for submissions is Friday, August 28th, 2020. Now, we've had an analyst perspective on streaming and AVOD, but what about the market from an insider's point of view? Crunchyroll is a specialist streaming service dedicated to anime with the genre's largest on-demand library of more than 1,000 titles and 30,000 episodes available in 200 countries and territories. Owned by Warner Media subsidiary Osso Media, Crunchyroll has ad-supported and paid-for tiers and recently announced milestones of 3 million paid subscribers and 70 million registered users. Joining me now to talk about the streamer's business model, its relationship with parent company Warner Media, and where he sees the market going, is Henry Embleton, head of ad products and revenue at Crunchyroll. 
Hi, Henry. Can you start by giving a brief outline of Crunchyroll, its history, and how the business model evolved into what you have today? Hi, John. Thanks very much for having me. Crunchyroll is is uh, a very interesting and unique media business. The easiest way to sort of just explain it from a high level is it, it's it's basically sort of the the home for anime, I think is probably a good way to put it. And for those of you who aren't familiar with anime, it's uh, long form Japanese cartoon content, but with sort of deep storylines that's uh, obviously been going for a very, very long time. So the easiest way to think of Crunchyroll is the Netflix for anime, if that's the best way to think about it. To answer your question about sort of the business model, we are primarily a subscription business or or an SVOD business. And then because of the, I suppose, the sort of historical context that Crunchyroll is, you know, is around 13, 14 years old and it's been around for that long in streaming media terms, it's pretty old. We also have an AVOD component as well. So it's uh, very similar to the way Spotify do it, you know, where you either have premium subscription or freemium. So basically not paid, but with ads. And essentially with that, I'm responsible for all of the advertising on the platform on Crunchyroll. Um, and obviously working in that dynamic with the subscription business as well. With the with the audience of Crunchyroll and just anime in general typically skewing younger, do you think that that, that audience perhaps with pockets which aren't quite as deep as your typical you know Netflix subscriber or whatever, do you think that they have a preference for that free ad supported model? I think preference is is it would be an interesting choice of words. I think you're right, definitely sort of skewing younger. So you know our audience ranges from anywhere from you know 13 to 35 and probably onwards as well. So we do have you know not every 13 year old has a credit card and can pull it out and obviously have a have a subscription hitting their account every month. Um, I think also as well, just sort of demographically, the gen that generation have you know been bought up on YouTube and, and are not having to sort of pay for premium content, so they're pretty familiar with it. But then also, I think the other sort of elements of it is actually the genre itself. When you say anime to a lot of, uh, I've been in a lot of sort of you know advertising agency meetings, and you say anime, and people sort of look at you funny and think you're a, you know, you're into some sort of you know you're a sort of very niche content section. With the AVOD portion, it gives us the ability to on-ramp and bring on users and gives us the ability to then sort of, or the opportunity, should I say, to turn them into fans. And by fans, I mean, obviously, then they get involved in the community. They follow us on social media platforms and ultimately fall in love with the brand and the content and want to pay for it. You've recently hit a milestone of 3 million subscribers and you have over 70 million registered users. How do you yourself balance the, I know you said that you're focused on the ad supported side of the business. How do you balance the AVOD versus SVOD elements? And do you view this hybrid model as something that other companies are increasingly looking to emulate? The balance is obviously, I think, look, from a, from a business perspective, you know, if you just look at the, the ARPU, the average revenue per user of an SVOD user versus an AVOD user, the, the delta is massive. It's absolutely massive. And it really is Pareto's law, right, where 80% sort of, of your revenue comes from 20% of your audience. And that's very much the, the case here. So in terms of the balance and the relationship, the idea is if you look at AVOD as the top of the funnel, you bring the users in and obviously they can sample the content, they can watch it you know, with, with an ad load on it. And then the idea is obviously you want to work them up that value curve. And the idea is you want them to fall in love with their product and eventually say, you know what, this is actually worth paying for and, and you know, I'm happy to get rid of the ad or I don't mind sort of supporting this because I love it so much. So that's very much sort of, you know, how we look at that balance and that relationship. And then, I mean, if you look at it, it again, depends on the sort of the, the position that a media company or an organization has and what their offering is. You know, if you look, I think 
Spotify is a really prime example, and they've been doing this for sort of over 10 years as well. So I don't think it's anything new, this sort of freemium to premium relationship. I think you're probably right in the sense that a lot of other media businesses are probably exploring this idea and have a VOD to SVOD sort of relationship. You mentioned there about people being very engaged with the product. Do you think that the... Uh, I know you said you don't really like viewing it as a niche thing because, you know, you've got millions and millions of people who are users. But do you think that the idea of anime being a bit more of a of a of subculture, as it were, it kind of engenders that sense of community? I think, yes, definitely. We always want to super serve our fans and enhance and, and empower our community and, and bring them together and, and have them fall in love with with the content. Would, I don't know, a sort of a, a more mainstream content platform have an AVOD and SVOD offering? Well, look at Hulu, for example. You know, they have a, an ad light model and, and then mm. there's that. Sure, Netflix haven't done it. Disney haven't done it. But then you look at other sort of, you know, other, other platforms that do have an AVOD only offering and some of them decide not to go into the SVOD space for various reasons. So the, the content genre obviously probably enhances our ability to do that. And yeah, I think uh, I think it's, you know, it's definitely something that be, should be considered. And I think ultimately, the takeaway is that we never really want to turn anyone away. So putting up a paywall straight away is, I don't think, is a, is a very good way to support that sort of that uh, that belief system. Crunchyroll, by its specialist nature, does attract a, a more niche audience than a Netflix or even HBO Max. But what are the benefits for advertisers in drilling that audience down even more via kind of targeted advertising, would you say? The way to look at it in the streaming media world, there's two types of streaming services. There's there's big and broad. So let's consider that's Netflix, um, YouTube, Amazon Prime, you know, all of those sort of big and broad ones that have m multiple different content genres. And they essentially just want to be, you know, something to everyone. But then the second form then is you have these verticalized, specialized niche streaming services that just focus on a particular sort of area, demographic, content genre, and they essentially look to be everything to someone. And we are very much part of that category where we want to be everything to someone. So let's take, for example, if someone in Hulu was representing, you know, in, in an ad pitch versus where we're pitching, Hulu would be able to say, what are you interested in? Do you want 35 to 55 year olds? Do you want 18 to 24 year olds? How many males, females do you want? We can provide that to you. We have a very sort of different approach where we say this is our audience, 18 to 35 predominantly, 70 percent male. And obviously, you know, these are our interests of our audience and we know exactly who they are, what they like and what resonates and what works with them. So it just keeps us very focused and very, very dedicated. So that's that's I think is very much how we position ourselves. Earlier in the episode, I spoke with Omdia analyst Ed Barton about the impact of uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic on advertising. I know you probably can't give the game away fully and you've just come back from uh, paternity break, but are you able to talk about some of the conversations, some of the types of conversations that you're having with your advertising partners, given the current difficult economic climate? Yeah, sure. You know, when when this COVID lockdown really became serious and we all started getting locked in our in our homes and obviously there were sort of, you know, stay at home orders issued. We, we essentially had sort of, you know, from my position, the worst possible thing could happen in the sense that consumption exploded, which normally would be very good. But then demand or advertisers obviously pulled back. So that's the travel category completely stopped. And and so we were in a real situation where you had these sort of all of these ad opportunities and ad impressions trying to be filled. And obviously there, there just wasn't enough advertising going around at the time. So it was it was certainly very interesting. And the way I looked at it at the time was there were two ways in which you could address this issue. One would be to drop your prices completely. And then I'll look to just try and fill the 3x the ad impressions that you were generating. The problem with that, if you go down that route and that path is that 
Um, when you come out of this, uh, it'll be very hard to raise your prices again back to those premium levels because you've dropped your price. So I think that was one challenge. The other way that you could look at it is look at sort of adjusting and adapting your ad load a little bit. So serving less ads and just managing it that way. So I think, again, we were very fortunate in our position because we are anime and our audience is very gaming centric. A lot of gamers and, and sort of gaming companies and advertising, gaming advertisers also found a sort of serious boom going on. So they were actually looking to spend more money. So we were actually quite fortunate in our position because of this sort of COVID bump, if you like, in that sense. Mm, well, you know, you've definitely seen bikes in, in streaming traffic and everyone is just watching online. I don't know how plugged in you are to the uh, TV world over here nowadays, but there was a, an Ofcom report that came out that showed that something like 60% of the UK population's waking hours were spent watching TV during the height of lockdown. Yeah, I, I can believe that. And uh, yeah, I can believe that. Last thing I really want to touch on is Crunchyroll's status as a niche service within a what is a massive media organization because Crunchyroll is owned by Otter Media which is owned by Warner how does it all pan out and are you fairly autonomous most of the time is most of the back and forth being done between you and Otter or are the likes of Kevin Riley and all of the Warner streaming people actively involved in what you do no, I think we, we, we retain a, a, a very large, if not complete degree of autonomy. And as I say, you know, it's, it's we're very successful and we continue to grow. So the old saying, if it's not broken, don't fix it. In terms of our relationship with HBO Max, there is there is a, a, a library, a select library of anime content on HBO Max, which is really good because obviously that only helps raise the profile of anime. But I think, you know, historically, if you look at any successful streaming service, there has always been an element of anime on that. And anime is, as I say, it is very niche, but even though it is very niche, and as you mentioned, we just hit 3 million subscribers and have 70 million registered users, there is certainly an audience out there and you definitely want to cater to that and attract that audience. So I think we're always happy to be a part of that and obviously be a, a section. And again, that goes back to the big and broad example versus this sort of the niche, niche specific example. In, in terms of HBO Max, do you get the the viewing stats for the Crunchyroll viewing in that? And do you have a way of tracking how many people discovered Crunchyroll through HBO Max? That is a very, that would be a very specific question. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't actually, to be honest, I don't see those stats if they exist. And uh, I, that, that unfortunately is not something I'm privy to. So no, but um, all I do know is that uh, it's, uh, what I have heard anecdotally is that, uh, that the, the anime has been performing quite well. Mm, because it'd be it'd be very interesting to see what kind of follow through there is on people discovering Crunchyroll through HBO Max and then actually visiting the your service and becoming a customer of Crunchyroll itself. I agree it would be. I think it's also probably a little bit too early to tell sort of that full yeah. life cycle given that Max is probably only a couple of months old so far. Great. Well, last thing I ask before I, I say goodbye to everyone on this show is how, how people can get in touch with you. Uh, I think uh, the usual ways: Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, uh, email, um, the usual, the usual, uh, the usual routes. If uh, if anyone has any specific questions or thoughts. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on and uh, speak soon. That's the show. Thank you to my guests Ed Barton from Omdia and Henry Embleton of Crunchyroll, and thank you for listening. TV Watch is written, produced and mixed by me, Jonathan Easton, and Digital TV Europe's editor is Stuart Thompson. You can find me on Twitter at EastJohnEast or get in touch with me via email at jonathan.easton at informer.com. We're actively looking for people to get involved with the podcast all the time, so if you've got a story that you think would work well, please do drop me a line.
You can follow Digital TV Europe at Digital TV Europe on Twitter and at DigitalTVEurope.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter that will keep you up to speed on all of the goings on in the TV industry and what streaming services are launching this week. And if you're new to the show and would like to be informed when the latest episodes are released, you can subscribe to TV Watch on your preferred podcast platform of choice, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.